You're listening to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Amir Tibon. On this week's episode, we talk about the U.S. midterm election. A week after Americans voted, we finally have something close to final results. The Republicans are expected to have a narrow majority in the House of Representatives, much smaller than they originally assumed they would have. The Democratic Party retains control of the Senate. President Joe Biden emerges as the big winner from this election. And we'll talk later about uh, one candidate for the title of the biggest loser of the vote that just took place. What does all this mean for Israel, for the new Israeli right-wing religious government that's about to be sworn in, for the U.S.-Israel relationship, and also for the American Jewish community? Joining us to answer all these questions are Haaretz's very own Ellison Kaplan-Sommer and Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion, who's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Fascinating conversation with them about American politics and U.S.-Israel ties coming up next. We are recording this podcast on a Tuesday evening here in Israel, and we are expecting later tonight an announcement by Donald Trump that he's seeking another term as U.S. president in 2024. At least that's what we're reading is about to happen. By the time you listeners hear this podcast, the news will already be out, of course, and we'll have more information about his special announcement from Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday night. But Ellison, you saw Trump earlier this week at his first public appearance after... the disappointing midterm elections for the Republican Party and especially for the MAGA wing of the party at a Zionist Organization of America event in New York. What was that all about? Hi, Amir. First of all, it's great to be here. So he went to his biggest fan base, uh, Donald Trump did uh, here in New York. The Zionist Organization of America um, presented him with the Theodore Herzl Medallion, It's a very uh, right-wing uh, Zionist group that identifies with kind of the, the right side of Zionism, uh, revisionist uh, Jabotinsky Zionism. Um, and uh, he has a diehard supporter in the uh, longtime president of the ZOA, Mort Klein. And Donald Trump's attorney from his second impeachment hearing is actually on the board. He's the head of the board of the, of the ZOA. So he came. He did not mention the midterm results at all in his speech. But what he did, you know, what made the head lines was repeating the assertion that uh, that he made in a social media post that uh, elicited a lot of controversy and that is charging with sort of a you know a threatening undertone or a, um, an undertone that was disturbing to people the fact that American Jews have Did not vote in sufficient numbers for the Republican Party that they do not support him Donald Trump in sufficient numbers because the majority of American Jews are liberal uh, Democrats and uh, he asserted in the speech that you have people in this country that happen to be Jewish who are not doing the right thing for Israel too many he said the Democrats get 75% of the Jewish vote which is hard to believe we can't let that continue. He said, not really indicating who is we and how he intends to not let that continue. It didn't sound very friendly, like I want to win over their votes. It, again, sounded like vaguely threatening, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't clear how. Yeah, so it sounds to me a little bit like, first of all, ignoring reality, basically not addressing the results. Uh, but then maybe if there's any hint of it, it's the Jews' fault. Why do they vote for the Democrats? EJ, uh, I want to thank you, first of all, for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you on this podcast um, and ask you, following your coverage of the midterms, is it uh, correct to call Donald Trump the biggest loser of this election that just happened last week in America? Well, I just want to say it's really great to be with you and with my dear friend, Allison. 
um, whose work I've admired, I, I've admired for so long. Yes, I think that's the answer. I took a lot of pleasure, I confess, in writing the sentence in a column the day after the election. I listed all the things that happened in the election and then said, and Donald Trump is a stone cold loser. Um, he, but he has a lot of company. Let's just start with Trump. I think one of the primary things that happened in our election was a massive rejection of right-wing extremism and particularly Donald Trump's uh, hand-picked candidates. Um, just last night, our time here, when um, Arizona was called against Kerry Lake, a real uh, hardline Trumpist who lied about election results and about a whole lot of other things, Going into the election, so many people were predicting that because she was charismatic and a former television personality, she would win that governorship over Katie Hobbs. Uh, she lost last night. Doug Mastriano, um, a real right-wing extremist in Pennsylvania, got absolutely overwhelmed by Josh Shapiro, who, by the way, is now, I think, going to become a major voice in American politics, and I'll, I'll list one more, which I think is really important, which is in Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, became, I think, a real contender for the 2024 presidential nomination if President Biden doesn't run by overwhelming a Republican named Tudor Dixon. Um, and not only that, but sweeping in the Democrats all the way down the ballot, the first time in decades that Democrats also control the state legislature. But you'll note that as I'm talking, it's about Donald Trump being a loser. It's about a lot of Republicans turning on him. It's about a lot of Republicans saying that the one Republican who clearly had a good night, Ron DeSantis, who is kind of Trumpism without Trump, uh, winning overwhelmingly in Florida. And already you're seeing in the polls um, Republicans saying, gee, I guess we prefer DeSantis to Trump for the 2024 nomination. But it really is a defeat for the entire right wing of the Republican Party. And one other point I'd make, which is that the Republicans really miscalculated believing that they could run without putting forward any program at all. And that's because I think a lot of their underlying ideas are unpopular. So they ran against inflation, they ran against crime, they thought that would be good enough, and it wasn't. You were skeptic even before the election, I recall, about the possibility of a red wave that is going to uh, crash on the shores of uh, Congress. Um, why do you think so many in the media and in the political world got it wrong? I mean, I was getting emails from my uh, Republican and Democratic friends in D.C. a day before the election predicting, you know, 30, 40 seats lost in the House, uh, a loss in the Senate. Um, wh what made so many people blind to the results that actually transpired? Well, I think of a few things. One is people were looking at history. And one of the reasons this is such a historically big win for Biden is because it, it is so unusual uh, for uh, an incumbent president, especially an incumbent president at a time of high inflation, uh, but or any kind of trouble to maintain their strength in Congress. Usually the opposition party would gain at least 25 seats in the House. Certainly on a knife edge Senate, they'd be able to pick up a seat or two to gain control of the Senate. It's not since uh, 1962 under President Kennedy right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, that an incumbent president managed to hold on to the Senate and possibly 
uh, depending on what happens in Georgia in the runoff there, gain seats. Uh, so I think people were looking a lot at history. I think there were a lot of bad polls. Um, I wrote a little uh, piece in our newsletter that the Post sends out, noting that pollsters are having a hard time figuring out who the electorate is going to be because we've had three big turnout surges uh, in the United States, a, a modest one in 2016 that helped Trump win the Electoral College, a big one for the Democrats in 2018, and then a big one in both parties um, in 2020. But there were also a lot of partisan polls out there that were really misrepresenting what's going on. If you looked at the you know deservedly respected polls on the eve of the election, um, NBC News, The Washington Post, ABC, they showed a very, very close election, an election within a point one way or the other. And I looked at those polls and I said, I just don't see a wave when I look at that polling. And I traveled around the country during the election and I've been around during blowouts um, in 2010 or 2014 when in the Obama years. Uh, when the Democrats got clobbered, it just didn't feel like that out there. Is there one anecdote you can share with us from traveling to the swing states, to the interesting district that was like a hint of what's about to come? Well, I did. Say, this was actually not on a trip, but I interviewed two of the most threatened Democrats in um, Pennsylvania, Matt Cartwright and Susan Wilde. They are both... Who both uh, survived one re-election. Who both survived. And... One of the things that was said over and over again is Democrats aren't running on the economy. They have no answer to um, the Republicans on inflation. And all Matt Cartwright and Susan Weil wanted to talk about was the economy. They campaigned on the economy, on what the Democrats had done with the infrastructure bill, with the science and technology investments that were passed, uh, and various other things. And when you went out there, I covered he lost, but I covered... Tim Ryan out in Ohio. Um, and the campaigns I was seeing on the ground did not sort of fully match what the conventional wisdom was about the kind of campaign that was being uh, run. And you can't underestimate the role of the abortion issue. I think that was the other miscalculation is just because abortion wasn't being talked about all the time uh, as it was immediately after the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade and sending the issue back to the states. It didn't mean women had forgotten about it. And when I looked at the Washington Post last poll, 59% of women, it wasn't as high in the end, but were saying they'd vote Democratic. You can't win a wave if 59% of women are voting against you. That's such an interesting observation that, you know, the fact that we in the media have moved on from a story because, you know, we there's news every day. Um, that's true in America. It's, I think, even more true here in Israel. And new things happen, and by definition, they push out the old thing. It doesn't mean the voters are not thinking about it anymore. Right, and and there, there was clear evidence. Uh, there, there was a, a, some award should go to a Democratic strategist called Simon Rosenberg, who... Oh, he, um, we, we interviewed him last week uh, on haaretz.com. Ben Samuels, our Washington correspondent, published a fascinating interview. Basically, the man who kept saying all the time, no red wave is going to come. Right. And he was arguing that if you looked, for example, at the surge in voter registrations after uh, the Supreme Court decision, no one was paying attention to that. If you looked at the Democratic advantage in early voting, no one was paying attention to that. Indeed, people poo-pooed it, saying, oh, the early vote doesn't really 
matter? Well, something mattered. And and he really, I, I called him uh, on the day of the election, actually, and said, all right, talk to me. Tell me about this red wave talk. And he went through his analysis and he got it right. Yes. And I really recommend our listeners to look for that interview that Ben published with him. Ellison, I, I want to talk a little bit about the view of all of this from Israel, because we just had our election a week before, and it was the exact opposite, I think, of what EJ just described. The pollsters in Israel also got the turnout wrong. And that's something that's so hard to predict. Uh, but here there was a rise in turnout, a surge for the religious right, basically. I think what's interesting is maybe a parallel between the unexpected turnout in both countries, and that is a youth turnout that's very hard to predict. It's hard to know how many young people are actually going to go. And I think in both cases, more young people voted than was expected, except in the U.S. it tilted the balance much more for the Democrats, for the left. And in the case of Israel, it uh, it tilted it to the religious right, because that's the way the political leanings of the younger generation uh, are trending. Although, you know, we had a very good analysis in Haaretz by Alon Pincus that showed that voting-wise, the Israeli people did not vote in much greater numbers for the religious and for the right wing than they did in previous elections. Most of the difference between left and right uh, and the clear right wing victory by Netanyahu was due to the fact that we had these two small parties, Meretz and Balad, fall below the uh, the electoral threshold. So quantitatively, there wasn't a gigantic shift in uh, in turnout and in the uh, the voting tendencies. But I think if you can point to one thing, it was definitely uh, uh, younger voters who in, in America made a difference for the Democrats and in Israel made a difference for the religious right. Could I underscore what Allison said? That is such an important fact factor in this election, all the way through, you could see that if young people, people under 30, under 35, uh, turned out in anything like significant numbers, and they didn't even have to match the turnout of older people who vote in larger numbers, if they turned out, Democrats were going to be in much better shape. And there, there was youth turnout. And the younger voters were voting close to two to one in the polls. They were about two to one Democratic in the actual vote, a little less so, but overwhelmingly Democratic. And I think that presents Republicans here with a long-term problem that they have to think about. And there were jokes that soon the Republicans will be calling to raise the voting age back to 21, <laughs> uh, you know, and, but that this is a problem for them. So I, I think Allison's point is very important about this outcome here. And you've got the mirror image problem for the Israeli left in that the, the younger yes. voters tend to be going more and more and more towards the right. But, you know, that really creates a really difficult situation for Israel as a country also, because if the trend in Israel is that the younger population is taking the country further to the right, and the trend in the U.S. is the opposite, um, at some point you're going to have a clash between these two growing future demographics of uh, the two close allies. Yes, I think this is a real challenge uh, to Israel in the long run. If I can uh, quote a, a very good Haaretz piece, I think that a piece by Ben Samuels, Democratic Senate majority, to help Biden set moderate agenda on Israel. I think in the short run, that's clearly the case. But the swing vote, if you will, in American opinion uh, on Israel are liberal and Democratic you know, citizens, voters, uh, who have long supported uh, the existence of Israel uh, as a Jewish state or Jewish homeland, 
but also opposed settlements were critical of Netanyahu over time, a want a two-state solution. That's the swing vote here in opinion. Uh, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for a right-wing uh, government in Israel and a, a right-wing going forward. And I also think, as you underscored, there is a difference between opinion among older liberals who still have a, a real sense of attachment to Israel uh, and younger liberals who are more shaped by the struggles of the last 20 years. And I think that, you know, when Mr. Netanyahu agreed to a Republican invitation uh, to speak before Congress against President Obama's... Yeah, ag agreed is a bit, I think, of, uh, you know, uh, a nice way to describe his involvement in the incident. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, fair enough. Uh, maybe uh, prompted, if you prefer. Yeah, in engineered and then agreed. But yeah, th that was a big moment for the relationship. Yeah, I mean, that appearance really shook up Democratic opinion, uh, really angered Democrats, because there had been a lot of bipartisan support for Israel, even among critics of uh, particular Israeli governments. And that shook things up in a big way, particularly for younger voters who were strong uh, supporters of Barack Obama at the time. So I think there are, it's going to be very complicated going forward. Biden is, as you always report and is true, a very long-standing supporter of Israel. Uh, but I think that you know, how this government behaves and the, how the government in Israel chooses to act um, is going to matter, I think, in how American opinion develops. Yes, and, and I think, Ellison, here in Israel, there is an understanding that Biden is emerging stronger from this election. And uh, the Israeli media, I have to say, also, um, you know, just quoting the American media, spoke about him about to lose control and become a lame duck and all that sort of stuff. Where does that put Netanyahu with his coalition partners? Because now they're facing an emboldened American president and a stronger Democratic Party. Right, and we've seen them already flex their muscles in uh, the administration, making pretty public and clear-cut statements about uh, how they feel about the potential of some of the extreme right-wing partners in the government, uh, Betzalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, getting senior ministries in which they would have to interface with the U.S. government. I mean, most prominently Smotrich um, getting the defense portfolio, which well, is... Well, it's just, it's an unbelievable thing we're even talking <laughs> about him becoming defense minister. I, I, have to, I have to say, it's a bit, well, you know, Donald Trump did become president of the United States at one point, so who knows? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, yes. you know, people are wondering, first of all, you know, the Iranians would have to play their part, but are we going to have a repeat performance of a, of a showdown between Biden and uh, Netanyahu over a resumption of the Iran deal? It could be, you know, basically a, a replay of what we saw over, over Obama. So I think it's going to depend. Would a strengthened Biden put more pressure on Israel, for example, to take a clear pro-Ukraine side when we've got Netanyahu, who we know leans very strongly the other way, you know, who has a very uh, good relationship with Putin and who um, believes that Israel's interests uh, strongly lie in, in maintaining the uh, the alliance with Russia. So, you know, there's a lot of potential there for some sort of clash or confrontation. Um, and the question is, you know, what will come up and, and how will it manifest? Yeah, I, th I think the Ukraine point is key. And, and also even on the Palestinian issue, which I think Biden doesn't really want to deal with because it's a bit of a hopeless case. Uh, but if the government takes uh, extreme measures, 
we could see involvement um, and we saw the story about the Department of Justice uh, carrying an investigation into the killing of Palestinian journalist Shirina Bouakle and this comes when the new uh, coalition partners of Netanyahu are promising to pass a law that would give Israeli soldiers total immunity um, from any incidents in which they kill Palestinians. Uh, good luck with that and the Biden administration and Democrats. No, absolutely. Um, EJ, I'm just interested in, in what you think about We've got this clear uh, divide within the Democratic Party um, of these pro-Israel moderates and of the progressive wing who has very, very clear-cut views on the Palestinian issue that many of the pro-Israel organizations cross the line. And we've seen uh, APAC now, you know, get much more directly involved in trying to battle these kind of candidates uh, in the primaries uh, to, uh, to limited success. I mean, how do you see the, the progressives within the party prioritizing the the Israel-Palestine issue, you know, within their their long list of issues and uh, and priorities uh, when it comes to exercising their influence within the party? And how much influence do you feel like they have in the party after these midterms? Yeah, I, I think those interventions um, sort of created uh, some resentments on the left end of the party, including among people for whom uh, the Israel-Palestinian issue is not a central issue, but they saw which side... Uh, these interventions were on. And I think that uh, did sort of harden some positions on the left of the party. Um, but as I say, I think the swing vote in the party, uh, and thus really an American opinion, is that camp that lies between the really tough critics of Israel in the party and uh, longstanding uh, supporters willing to you know, to back Israel under lots of circumstances. I think the swing vote are those people I describe who are traditional supporters of Israel, who nonetheless have had real problems with uh, Netanyahu, with the right wing in Israel. And that's why, as we've been saying, I think what this government does is going to matter. Um, and as you mentioned, Alison, when we were talking before, the podcast began, you know, I think the left of the Democratic Party on the whole has other priorities that are more uh, domestic than uh, international, although, you know, on this issue, some people have been very outspoken. But I, I still think it's that swing group to keep an eye on uh, who are not hostile to Israel, who kind of want to support Israel, uh, but cannot support some of the policies the government has been pursuing. And on those who feel strongly about it, I don't know. I, I you know, we don't see it because it's behind closed doors. I keep imagining the Pelosi's and the Schumer's, you know, sort of longtime um, uh, pillars and guardians of the party, trying to tell uh, some of the people who have the more outspoken views on uh, on Israel Palestine, you know, ahead of whatever important election or debate is going on, that it's it's the kind of thing that they don't want to put out there because it could make them uh, potentially lose an election. Right. They, I mean, again, you know, Schumer and Pelosi, uh, Schumer obviously in particular has been a strong, strong supporter of Israel going uh, all the way back. And Pelosi broadly has uh, too. I think that their view is this is one of those lines of division in the party they don't want to see pop up. They don't want a big public feud uh, over this issue. Um, but if there is our actions by the Israeli government that incense the broad middle of the party, I think that is what is going to 
uh, cause Israel some real trouble in public opinion here and inside the Democratic Party. They'd rather not have that fight, though. Right. Amir, you think that's going to happen? Uh, I think it's inevitable. Um, and, and, and I do want to bring also the Jewish community into the equation here. I mean, the biggest Jewish hero of these midterms, I think you guys probably both agree, is Josh Shapiro, next governor of Pennsylvania, who defeated a far-right... Uh, candidate um, who, you know, let's say, was uh, fiddling with anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists for um, the entire campaign and refused to denounce them. And um, when he was being criticized for it, uh, the reply, I think, from his wife, from Doug Mastriano's wife, was, we love Israel more than many Jews. And then the problem is that the Israeli version of Doug Mastriano, Ellison, is now about to become part of the next government. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. EJ, will Josh Shapiro be the first Jewish president of the United States? You know, he is very impressive. I, I wrote a column over the weekend saying, you know, everyone is talking about Ron DeSantis. And I said, pay attention to Gretchen Whitmer and Josh Shapiro. Um, and I actually went to that final rally in Pennsylvania uh, where President Biden and former President Obama spoke. And Josh Shapiro spoke, and I got to say, I had seen him almost entirely on television interviews where he was this thoughtful uh, person, you know, very good at answering questions. I didn't realize what a good platform speaker he was. He was a very early supporter of Barack Obama uh, in 2008, and he kind of channels Obama's style. He's a very good platform speaker. And yes, I think he is a uh, national leader when he won he said uh, that the election was a victory for three simple truths that have sustained our nation over these last 246 years. We value our freedom, we cherish our democracy, and we love this country. That's a pretty good broad platform to run on. <laughs> and the Jewish community loves him because he's constantly co yeah. uh, quoting the Bible and, uh, and Talmudic uh, texts. So. Yes, no, he is very serious about religion. That's another thing. Um, that I would, I hope he sort of keeps going on that uh, because, uh, you know, as the country secularizes, young people are moving away from organized religion altogether, not just among Jews, but among Christians, among, uh, other, among Muslims. Um, and Shapiro can talk about religion in a way that's very engaging, I think, for younger people, for liberals and uh it's going to be interesting to see where he goes with that. But he is very religiously literate. I think it's a very important piece of him. So interesting to hear you guys talk about him. I, I interviewed him in 2017 when he was uh, just started as a, as a as attorney general in Pennsylvania. Um, I think he was at some meeting of attorney generals of the states with Donald Trump. Um, and there was some anti-Semitic incident. I don't remember something maybe was desecration of synagogue or something and he pressured the the president on it and um i remember i thought wow this is an, an interesting guy and, and he gave a great interview at the time for haaretz and now we're um you know fast forward five years we're talking about him as a potential president um i don't know i we'll see but he's definitely i think one of the biggest stories of this election uh, ej i do want to ask you still with all of the good news for the democrats the Republicans are going to win the House of Representatives. At this point, it's almost, I think, you know, guaranteed. What does that mean for uh, President Biden? 
they're going to have a very narrow majority, so I assume that's much better than uh, what previous presidents faced after the midterms. But where is it still going to cause him trouble? By the way, I, it, your being at the National Association of Attorneys General meeting reminded me of an old American joke that it's the same acronym as National Association of Aspiring Governors. And there you have Josh Shapiro uh, now <laughs> as the governor. Um, yeah, true, no, true. it's going to be very difficult to govern the country uh, with the, if you know, assuming the projections hold up as they look like they will. Democrats were actually making some real progress in the House and the counts until a couple of days ago when they lost a few seats yesterday as the counts finished. So it's highly likely, but it will be the narrowest of majorities. There is talk of Democrats trying to reach out to the remaining rump of Republican moderates to see if there's any deal that could be made. The, I, I guess it was six Republicans voted for Biden's infrastructure bill, 11 House Republicans who survived voted for his technology investments. I don't think much will come of that, but what it does do is it speaks to how difficult it's going to be for Kevin McCarthy to run this conference. He's already got publicly announced opposition from his right wing, uh, but it's not clear that the moderate conservatives or the middle of the more middle of the road Republicans have a lot in him uh, either. So I think that will put, may put some restraints on them in terms of, say, impeaching uh, Joe Biden. Uh, there was a lot of talk of that during the election that a Republican House will impeach him over whatever. Uh, and uh, that really was, okay. you know, they, they, in, that, impeach, they, they, impeaching just, for defeating Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Correct. Well said. I think that becomes more difficult. But it obviously, if they have a majority, it becomes very difficult for the Democrats to pass a lot of ambitious uh, things. And they will be trying to run endless investigations of Joe Biden. Although, again, you wonder if some of those more middle of the road Republicans, including some new ones who got elected. So there are some from the Hudson Valley in New York who aren't real right wingers um, will say, you know, this is not going to help us going forward. So I think a lot hangs on that internal um, activity inside the Republican caucus. But on the one important thing to underscore is that winning the Senate is usually important because, as uh, listeners to this podcast knows, the Senate confirms judges. Joe Biden will continue to be able to name uh, and get confirmed a whole lot of judges to uh, offset the, the judges appointed uh, under Donald Trump. The Senate confirms appointees to the Biden administration. And by the way, if the Democrats pick up that extra seat in Georgia, that matters quite a lot because right now uh, committees uh, in the Senate that are very powerful can really affect the traffic on a lot of uh, bills and nominations. Uh, if the Democrats pick up that 21st seat, they win a majority on all those committees, which will make running the Senate a whole lot easier. Uh, and that's why both parties are going to be fighting very hard for that Georgia Senate seat. A bit of a deja vu, remember, uh, uh, the, the stakes were even were even higher for the previous uh, Georgia runoff. Senator Warnock said, we've done this before. You know, the, it's right back to what elected him in the first place. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds so, so familiar. Guys, I want to uh, ask both of you one final question uh, before we end this fascinating conversation. 
Do you think Joe Biden should be and will be the Democratic nominee for president in 2024 following these midterm Ooh, results? EJ, you go first. It's your turf. <laughs> so I have written a while back that I think in the end, uh, Biden may decide that it's better for him and better for the country that he not run. And that if he didn't run, uh, I think he could make this extraordinary kind of Cincinnatus case that I ran because I wanted to save American democracy. I wanted to fight for the soul of America. I've left the country way better off than uh, uh, I, I found it. Uh, we have really set back Donald Trump now twice. I passed some, uh, some very good bills to set the American economy on a better course. And everything I do from now on is not about politics. Uh, it's about putting the country in good shape for my successor. I think the one thing that flies in the face of that happening um, is Donald Trump, where I think Joe Biden devoutly believes that looking at the rest of the Democratic Party, he may be the one guy who could beat Trump because he has a proven record of doing that. Uh, so I think the more likely it is for uh, Trump to win the Republican nomination, the more likely it is that Joe Biden will run again. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I think that if either of them on either side, Trump or Biden, goes up against, you know, a younger, more vigorous, you know, ambitious uh, candidate, it's going to be uh, age is going to be an issue. But if it's one against the other, you can't really bring age into it, right? Because they're both the same age. I agree that, you know, the best move, especially if he wants to go down in the history books, legacy wise, would be for Biden to sort of uh, dub somebody his successor and, you know, give him his the full, um, his full support. But um, EJ, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the problem with that if he chooses anybody but his vice president, it's going to be viewed as a, as a huge snub to Kamala Harris and cause, you know, great divisions in the party over that. And if it is Kamala Harris, there's, there's going to be a lot of problematic aspects of that candidacy. So um, the, the, the scenario of him stepping aside for another candidate, doesn't it have a lot of landmines? No, I was talking to somebody close to Biden a couple of months ago who made the point that one of the arguments for Biden is to avoid a bloodbath in the party. And that if you look at the possible people coming up, can someone say with certainty that they will be stronger than Joe Biden? And this person's answer was no. Um, my own view is that he can allow a normal uh, fight for the nomination to go forward. Um, it won't be easy. I think that he would be able to stay out of it while saying some nice things about Kamala Harris. Um, but I, I agree. I think you're putting your finger on what would be a very complicated problem for Democrats and Biden in, in uh, particular. But I tell you, if Biden doesn't run, um, there are probably 100 Democrats who want to run for uh, president. There won't be 100 Democrats running for president. But you look at these governors just this time, and you know, Gavin Newsom says he's not running, but he certainly became more important. The governor of California, Gretchen Whitmer, as I said earlier, I think is really going to be looked at Governor Cooper down in North Carolina. Uh, there will be a strong progressive somewhere in there. Right within his administration, besides Kamala Harris, there are uh, Pete Buttigieg, Gina Raimondo, uh, Senator Klobuchar would like to run again. It will be an extraordinary battle if uh, Biden doesn't run. And again, that's his uh, people who think he should run say, uh, let's avoid that battle. 
Uh, I think that battle could actually be good for the party in the long run, but we'll see. Uh, guys, this has been really a great conversation. Uh, I learned a lot and want to thank both of you, Elison Kaplan-Sommer of Arts and E.J. Dion of the Washington Post, the Brookings Institution and Georgetown University. Thank you both very, very much for joining the podcast. Thanks so much, Amir. Thanks. It's been a joy to be with you. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to Shania Viram, our editor and producer. We'll be back again next week. And until then, Shalom from Tel Aviv.